Venting in two-part inventions. Is it possible to make beautiful music with just two intertwining melodies? We're about to find out. First this. Hi, it's Peter Saltzman. You're listening to Improvisations on the Ledge. If you're enjoying this podcast with its unique blend of piano and verbal improvisation, please subscribe, give it five stars, and write a verbose review with lots of big words. On to the show. many years I've been obsessed with Johann Sebastian Bach. I think most composers are to some degree. And it's kind of like this indefinable, undefinable obsession, though it's also very definable. The undefinable part is what is un or indefinable about all great music. That is, it's transcendent quality, its ineffable ability to stir emotions, the seeming perfection in it, or the lack of perfection that also makes it very human and special. Now, Bach maybe is uh, unique in musical history. He came at a time, well, during his time, he was considered a great keyboardist, and a very good composer, but he was considered very old-fashioned. There were new strains of music coming up in Europe, the early stages of what we now call the classical period, which is mostly characterized by Mozart, Haydn, and Beethoven in the popular imagination. But like all things that happen in history, we only have a general overview of what really happened. And in fact, Bach's sons whose names I'm not remembering. He had many. Carl Philip Emanuel, somebody, somebody, Frederick, whatever. They all had the last name Bach, in any case. That, that we know. His sons were, in fact, among the leaders of this pre-classical period, the inchoate development of a new style that was less complex. It was meant to be more populist in a way and uh, with simpler lines, easier melodies to remember perhaps, and a different approach to musical form that had very clear delineated sections based on song forms, song and dance forms that were more of a public form. Bach's music was considered old-fashioned because it was very contrapuntal, dense, complex, not very populist, I suppose, in its approach. So he was widely respected, but also considered kind of out of date. Of course, we do not consider him that way these 300 years later or whatever it is. Getting back to my obsession with the great old man, it gets down to, I suppose, the counterpoint, the perfection of these individual musical voices interacting in seemingly impossibly perfect ways.
was Johann Sebastian Bach's two-part invention number four in D minor. So, as I said, most of us composer people have to come to terms with this man, as we do with Beethoven and others, but Bach and Beethoven perhaps are the towering figures of Western music before the Jazz Age and the modern era. With Bach... Interestingly, a lot of the keyboard music that I studied when I was younger and every classical pianist studies and many, probably most jazz pianists as well, a lot of this music was actually written for Bach students. They weren't meant to be publicly performed pieces of music. They were studies, exercises, very musical exercises, but they had a specific purpose to teach you how to play a certain way. And the most famous are his Preludes and Fugues uh, from the Well-Tempered Clavier in two books, 48 Preludes and Fugues in uh, every major and minor key. And then he had a less comprehensive, perhaps, series called the Two part inventions and the three-part inventions. And these were shorter. They were very specific in their the musical and technical challenges that they dealt with. To be clear, Bach didn't write purely technical exercises that had no musical value. They were musical challenges for the keyboardist as well. And we're not, in large part, we're not talking about pianists because piano was just near the end of Bach's life. Piano was in its early stages of development, and Bach did play, try them out, and admired the attempt, but wasn't totally satisfied yet. So Bach's main axes, as we would say today, were the church organ, the harpsichord, and this very small portable keyboard that he would carry on his back as he walked from town to town, and Bach walked a lot. He'd just walk for 60 miles. It was called the clavier, and it was very small, not a full keyboard like we're used to on a, a modern piano, and it was very quiet as well. It had a very limited dynamic range. It had some unique technical aspects about it. But the point is, those were his instruments, not the piano. He wrote these things for students, often during the lesson. I don't know how long these lessons were. I mean, did you get an hour? I don't know. Maybe lessons were three hours and you only saw the great man once every month or something. But he wrote these things often during the lessons and then eventually published them somewhere along the line. They became the standard keyboard literature for pianists learning how to play the instrument along with the Beethoven sonatas, Mozart sonatas, Chopin, etudes, nocturnes, all this stuff. So personally, and I've probably told this story before, I don't know if I've told it on this podcast, but I read a two-part biography about Bach by Albert Schweitzer, of all people. There were chapters on his improvisational wizardry how he could improvise these pieces which we study and spend months trying to learn, these contrapuntal pieces like fugues and inventions on the spot. And I read this maybe when I was 17, and it kind of freaked me out, to be honest, because there I was, a pretty damn good jazz pianist at that age, playing professionally. Of course, in jazz, the main theme of it in a way, is improvisation and your ability to do that, whether it's a blues form. (laughs) 
Or a bebop form or a modal form, modern jazz, starting with uh, Miles Davis and Coltrane and so on. You were expected to be able to improvise in these styles and forms. And then I read about Bach and his ability to do this in his particular era, using his particular musical language. The idea that you could improvise in counterpoint It was shocking to me. Even then, when I was 17 or so, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be able to improvise in counterpoint? And I look back at some of my handwritten, poorly written exercises that I wrote for myself to try to do this, even back then. And it was they were very halting attempts, to say the least. I probably didn't finish any of them. But I was on this road on this path that would eventually lead me to where I sort of can do this, improvise in a modern context, but contrapuntally with two, three, or four voices. Now, this particular episode is going to focus on only two voices, two voices happening simultaneously, interacting. That means no chords, no fancy figures like... That would be about the opposite of contrapuntal. I'm talking about two voices defining the entire musical composition, the experience. So that means voice number one. That's just a sample of improvising with two voices alone. Now, the interesting thing that I found in studying and playing box music and then trying to do this myself by writing these exercises was with two voices, even though you're not playing chords per se, you're able to imply them, meaning a chord is usually three notes or more, like our friend C major. You recognize that even if you're not a musician, you recognize that as an entity called a chord. It can be played many ways. All C major. But if you were to represent that chord, a three-note chord, in this case C, E, G, with only two notes, how would that work? If you were playing melodically two notes, how would that be implied? Well, for example. So that was a very simple, what we call diatonic, meaning within the key of C major. Diatonic doesn't just mean C major, by the way. Whatever the key is. So... The voices are acting independently or interdependently. They're still, in this case, those are the three notes of the C major chord inverted, but... And then the left hand 
does something contrapuntally similar to it, but it's implying, as you could hear, if you put all those notes together, it's still the C major chord. So that's my little bit of music theory for dummies. Um, that is, non-musicians. If you, uh, actually, if you chose to be a non-musician, you made the smartest choice. So enough about my thinking on this subject. What did Bach think about his contrapuntal music and specifically these two and three part inventions I'm speaking of? Here is a direct quote from the publication from Bach about what his intention was. He had a fair amount to say, maybe too much. Here it is, Mr. Bach. Forthright instruction, wherewith lovers of the clavier, especially those desirous of learning, are shown in a clear way, not only one, to learn to play two voices clearly, but also further progress, number two, to deal correctly and well with three obligato parts, moreover, at the same time, to obtain not only good ideas, but also to carry them out well, but most of all, to achieve a cantabile style of playing, and thereby to acquire a strong foretaste of composition. That's all one sentence. A lot of commas. I understand that people wrote that way back then. That style of writing, particularly with Bach writing it, does not stand up to his compositions. But to unpack that, he basically is telling us this is for people desirous of learning to play, and that the end goal is to give you a sense of composition, how to write music, basically. And that's interesting to me because while it's written for didactic purposes. It is really teaching you the fundamentals of composing. And so these are compositions in the end, fundamental compositions. And that's what Bach wanted to achieve with them. So what do I want to achieve? Here is a two-part invention I wrote maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, with the idea, now let me just say, I did not write these for my students. I wrote them for my favorite student, me, to teach myself all of these values that Bach speaks about in a rather pompous style, but in his case, he was apparently doing it for his students. I'm doing it for myself. Now, I think ultimately Bach used the student as a way to explore his own creativity. To limit himself to two voices like this, this was the kind of guy, kind of guy that Bach was. He wanted to be able to do as much as possible with the smallest, most limiting musical materials possible. So anyway, back to my own endeavors in this area. I felt that the time was right to do something about this idea that I had many years ago that I should be able to improvise in multiple independent musical voices, or I should say interdependent, because they clearly have to connect to each other. And as I said, the idea is that they connect in such a way that they create a kind of musical harmony by implying it. Even if you're not playing at any given time a chord, the music suggests it. So the idea was I'd write these and other contrapuntal type pieces in order to gain fluency with multiple independent voices so that I could eventually improvise that way. And I wrote a couple of these. I just wrote another one like last week after putting it by the wayside for a long time, which I'll play in another episode. I haven't learned it yet. In any case, here is the first of, well, there's three of them. 
One was written for a student. He wasn't very good, though. Well, anyway, here we go. So whether or not that meets Bach's instruction, the forthright instruction, wherewith lovers of the clavier, especially those desirous of learning, are shown a clear way not only to learn to play two voices clearly, but also further progress to deal, okay, I didn't get to, I haven't written any three-part inventions, uh, so he goes on about that. So the question then becomes, did this teach my favorite student, me, did it teach me to not only uh, give me a strong foretaste of composition, but could I achieve my personal goal, which was to be able to improvise in a contrapuntal style? I already knew how to compose before this, before I wrote these. And I already knew how to write counterpoint. That It wasn't even that. It was really about, for me, to be able to play it, improvise it. So did I achieve that? Well, let's see. We are now going to improvise in two voices. What will happen?
Well, I'll let you judge, but the idea was not simply to be able to, of course, play two or three or four independent voices or interdependent voices, but to be able to do it in a contemporary modern style, meaning my own style. And the testament to my success or failure would be, does it make sense musically and still fulfill this kind of arbitrary instruction in my own head to learn how to play two voices clearly, Bach being my teacher. We'll try it again. Making music with just two melodies and nothing else to support it, no production, no vibe, whatever it is, it can feel pedantic, but if you work through it to the other side, it can be liberating, a liberating exercise in a kind of pure musical thought, sans all the extraneous stuff. Just let the two melodies speak to each other, two or three, just like when the early musicians first discovered that you can have a conversation musically between two or more voices. So I want you to imagine the following scenario. Two people, let's call them a man and a woman, sitting by the hearth late at night 10,000 years ago. One of them, let's say the man, starts to sing. So this is, uh, for the sake of argument, let's call this their home melody. Their small clan, this is something they sing before they go to bed. Let's put it in a lower voice since the man is starting. And the woman in a higher octave joins in. Good so far, but say the woman is getting kind of bored with singing along with her mate. Let's call it her mate. I don't know if they had husbands and wives back then. So say he's doing his thing. And she decides, well, I'm not going to just like sing with him in unison. I'm going to do something kind of a call and response to that. And he's going, what the hell are you doing? She said, I'm tired of singing along, you know, just like right with you. I'm going to do my own thing. Just Just keep doing what you're doing and I'll just, you know, go with it. Fine. He's going, okay, I, I see what you all you're really doing is you're, you're just copying what I'm doing like a few seconds later. Right, right, right. So what's wrong with that? Well, go ahead. Go, go on. Oh.
wait, wait, just a minute there, he says. Uh, yeah, yeah. It seemed like when I went down, you went up. I, went, I did this thing. Something. Yeah, so what's wrong with that? It, it, it's like a, a backwards version, a, a retrograde of what you're doing. Of course, they probably didn't have the word retrograde. They, yeah, it's something like schmustup. Yeah, that's it. So they go on. As you see, the more they get into this, the more elaborate it becomes because they're feeding off of each other's ideas. There's counterpoint upon the counterpoint, melody built on what the other one did, extrapolating from what the first person did to the second and then back and forth. And it keeps going like this. And they end on that nice unison. So that's 10,000 years ago. A scenario that may have happened, probably not, but something like it could have happened. When you think about music, how it evolved, many theories say it came from warfare. And we know this is true even during our Civil War, where drums were used, different drum strokes were used to signal some element of battle. Rhythm, almost certainly rhythm, was the first element. Tapping on a stick four times meant attack. There's a bison around the corner. So we build from rhythm and then pre-language. People making sounds. Sounds that begin to mean something and have different pitches. As language and sound from the human voice develops, people, of course, start to have conversations with it. As the idea of melody, a, a simple tune, a pre-tune, begins to develop, the natural thing to do would be to, in musical conversation, to either harmonize it or to offer a counter, counterpoint, a dialogue. And this is why I believe that this is a fundamental value in music, of making music. And if we lose sight of it, we lose a huge part of what music is about. So for me, ultimately, going back to this, writing with two voices or four voices or whatever, is about learning to have simple musical dialogues again. Now, they don't have to necessarily be simple, and they don't have to be purely melodic in a very ancient or simple way. They can be complex. They can be futuristic conversations, conversations that we've never had. But I, I still love this idea of being able to do it with just two voices.
But if I'm to be honest with myself, I have to admit that all of this talking gets a little boring after a while. It'd be like a movie where there was nothing but dialogue. And like that ancient woman who got tired of following along with her mate, doing the same thing it was as he was singing a little ritual melody, I get tired of just doing two voices. Writing for two voices is not merely to do it, it's to give me a foundation to build upon. Kind of like Bach said, providing a strong foretaste of composition. For me, it was a foretaste of a richer approach to improvisation in which all the voices had the opportunity to speak out on their own, even if the texture itself wasn't purely contrapuntal, that they had the ability to jump out and say something. Maybe a left-hand voice with my third finger was just sitting there playing a subservient role, and it decided it was its turn to speak up. That's how I think of it. So instead of ending with a perfect little two-part invention improvised, I'm going to take those lessons I learned from that and improvise freely with no restrictions on how many voices I'll be playing at any given time. Let what I learned come out. Let those inner voices speak out. So that's what this is.
Hey, it's me, Peter Saltzman, again. I mean, who else? Stay tuned for the next episode of Improvisations on the Ledge, which you'll be gently notified about if you subscribe. And if you love the music, you can hear a ton more on my Bandcamp page, petersaltzman.bandcamp.com, where you can also subscribe and get access to exclusive content, including all the music from these podcasts, not to mention all the non-piano music, like my one-minute songs. And if you want to support my work directly, please check out my newly launched Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash petersaltzman. Finally, be sure to check out my main website, petersaltzman.com, for all the latest. And don't worry, all of these links are in the notes below. Thanks for listening.